Good morning, church. That song, you know, we've just heard these words, and I hope you were impacted by them, and I, I think there was kind of like a hush in the room as that song um, was being played, but if you're not in speaking to God, if you're not in it, I don't want it. Let all else fade away. Take the whole world. Give me Jesus. Let all else fade away. And I think that's a difficult thing to practice. I think it's one thing to listen to the lyrics and be stirred by them, um, to sing the lyrics and have it as an aspiration. And I think often we're singing aspirationally. This is what I want. This is what I want my life to be about. But then the reality of Monday morning crashes in and our lives and it becomes exceedingly difficult to actually live this way. That is the challenge of the Christian life. So you sing lyrics like that and you just go, that seems so difficult to actually attain. And I I think it's difficult to practice because we have so much. So to actually say, take the whole world, take everything away from me, strip it all away and just give me Jesus. There's so much that has to actually go for us to get there. Correct? Yeah. It's just so hard. As, as Christians in North America, in the West, we don't really grasp the extent to which our lives are cluttered and encumbered by things that actually obscure Jesus. And one thing that would surely deal with that and has proven to deal with that throughout history is if we were actually a persecuted church. If we as Christians actually face persecution, under persecution, all the things that the world has given to us, all of those eventually get stripped away. And all you really are left with is Jesus. And I'm not sure what else actually gets us to that point aside from maybe, maybe a terminal illness where we know our end is coming and all we're left with is Jesus. But persecution does it for sure. And the church father Ignatius Uh, Ignatius was part of the generation of leaders that came right after the apostles. And Ignatius said this, Christianity is greatest when it's hated by the world. It's greatest when, when it's hated by the world. And the greatness of the church is attained because, just like we've been thinking about for us as individuals, the greatness of the church is, is, is attained because everything else that we've added to the church gets stripped away. And all that's left is devotion to Jesus Christ. All that's left is the best church we could possibly be, the best kind of Christian we could possibly be. And it's persecution that produces that. And if the song that we just heard is really a prayer that's coming off of our lips, a prayer to God, let all else fade away, Please understand that as you sing that lyric and you pray that prayer to God, persecution may well be the answer to the prayer. God may well answer the prayer in that very way. So Paul wrote uh, to the believers in Colossae, this is in Colossians 4.18. He was under persecution as were most Christians in the first century. And Paul simply throws this line into the letter to the Colossians. Remember my chains. That's the title of our series. And it's a plea to the Colossian believers for them to pray for him and to support them, support him as best they can while he was uh, in the midst of suffering and persecution for the gospel, actually in chains, actually in prison. 
And Paul uh, would eventually be martyred for his faith, according to tradition, not recorded in the scriptures, but according to tradition, because he was a Roman citizen, he was beheaded uh, for his faith in Jesus Christ, as would countless other first century believers. But persecution is not confined just to the biblical narratives. It's not confined just to history. We're actually finding out now that the persecution of Christians around the world is at the highest rate it has ever been at in all of history. That more Christians in the 21st century are being persecuted for their faith than at any other point in history. And they're being oppressed and persecuted for no other reason but that they love and serve Jesus Christ. We're talking about as we meet today in freedom, even with government benefits to meet, We have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are not able to meet in freedom and who are facing all kinds of persecution because they love Christ. And so in the next two weeks, um, this week and next, in a dialogue format, Jordan and I are going to present some material about persecution, what it is, what it isn't, how we ought to be responding to it uh, as it happens around the world and how we ought to be preparing our own lives uh, for what may be coming in the years Ahead, So I'm going to get Jordan to pray, then we're going to get started on this message and um, yeah, pray. Sounds great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, already, God, for what we've seen this morning, for the opportunity to be here to lift your name high in worship. And uh, Lord, the opportunity that we have to be able to meet in freedom this morning and to do all of these things without any threat uh, to our lives or livelihood is an incredible blessing, one that we often take for granted. Mm -hmm. And Father, we pray as we spend time looking into your word, as we spend time looking at examples in our day and age in history of uh, men and women who laid their lives on the line for the sake of the gospel going forth, uh, Lord, we pray that you would ignite a passion in our hearts to be able to say and live out and do the same. Father, I pray that the gospel would burn in us so much that we would be willing to say, not my will, but yours be done, and to whatever extent. Father, you desire to see that happen in our lives. So be with us now, Lord, we pray. Would you uh, teach us from your word? And Father, would you do what you see fit to do here this morning? In the strong name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, just before I I get into this, now, uh, Jordan is our interim youth director, and he was planning his uh, teaching schedule for the next uh, year, for September through June, with um, our youth. And uh, he put this great little series there on, on the persecuted church um, and persecution in, in his preaching plan. And I had two empty weeks in July, so I decided to rip off his idea <laughs> and, and do it before he did it. There's no and, original um, ideas ever. And, and so then invited him to actually do this uh, with me so that... Uh, you so know, students, sorry, you're going to get like the double whammy of both right. here and then and then I It should be year. really good by the time you teach them, Hopefully. though, because we will have refined the material here, so... <laughs> So that's good. Plus, it was a way. I, this is my last two weeks before I go on my uh, summer break. So this is this is I. Uh, this is a way for me to only have to prepare half a message. See, so in these last two two weeks as well. So there's some ulterior motives here, but I uh, know great great to be able to do this together. So we we just gave you blank notes, and you can just uh, jot down uh, what you need to um, along the way here. But let's start with this. Let's talk about the inevitability of persecution for us as believers. And eventually, by inevitability, what I really mean by that is that eventually, prophetically, what we're hearing is that 
Um, we're headed to a day when all Christians indeed will be persecuted. It's a sign of the coming of Christ. In the meantime, what we see are some believers facing persecution and some that live in peace and security and face no persecution. That's certainly been true for the most part in, in the Western world. Let me give you a couple of verses here that head us down this road. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul's writing to his young pastor apprentice, Timothy, and he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, that doesn't seem to be entirely true in our, again, Western 21st century context in the sense that there may be many people here who desire to live a good and godly life, but who are not being persecuted. And we have to understand that when Paul is writing, he's writing into his first century context to a pastor who's in a city, pastoring the church in Ephesus, where there is persecution and where they are facing opposition for their faith. So this speaks directly into that context where they were facing pressure from the synagogue leaders and pressure from mobs and pressure from, uh, from uh, merchants and pressure from the Roman authorities. They had all of that on them. And so there was some kind of sense that if you're seeking to live for Christ and those are the conditions and you will face persecution, you should expect that. That's inevitable. And then in terms of the prophetic future or the apocalypse, uh, Luke 21, 12, uh, Jesus said, but before all of this, they will lay hands on you. Before all of the things that happen in the end times, as the, as the run-up to the end times and the coming of Christ happens, before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Some of that was fulfilled in the first century, in the immediate with the apostles, and we've seen it fulfilled a little bit. Um, over you know, a lot, really, over history, and then, but ultimately, there's going to be this big ultimate fulfillment for for all of us, and um, and so with that, it's kind of like an understanding of the inevitability of persecution. This is something that is like normal for Christians seeking live for Christ and who are under certain conditions. How do we determine what is and isn't persecution? There might be some here who are saying, you know what, I do feel like we are persecuted today in Canada, and uh, we're going to kind of move in the direction where we are going to show you that that is not true. Um, and we have a couple lists to share with you, because this is, this is a point of confusion in the Western church right now as Christians. We're losing influence in the culture. That's indisputable. But does that constitute persecution? And that's what we're, we're going to kind of go after. So it may be, here, here's, some, here's something that might be helpful. It may be persecution if, this is like a top 10 list, all right? It may be persecution if it is about the gospel and Jesus and not your personal moral agenda. A lot of Christians are confused on this point and they think that the, the pressure and the blowback we're getting on moral issues, somehow that's persecution and it is not necessarily persecution. We're talking about the cross being the offense, that Jesus Christ himself is the rock of stumbling or the stone of stumbling. Not us, not our moral convictions. Secondly, you face false accusations or half-truths to discredit you and your message. That could move toward actual persecution. Or if it's rooted in the proclamation of the gospel in Jesus Christ, not in you. It has to be about Christ. If it is religiously motivated in that the persecutors are said to be serving God. Again, that flows right out of a prophecy where they believed that the persecution of Christians was actually um, uh, serving God. That they were serving God and doing that. Or if the message, it may be persecution, if the message threatens the status quo. 
And we see that very often that the institutions around us are very, very intent on preserving what is and not challenging that. And the gospel very often challenges the status quo. It may be persecution if you're facing legal discrimination, access to courts, access to representation. And nobody's being denied any of that. Your property, your family, your physical well-being are being threatened. It may be persecution if employment, pay, and promotion opportunities are denied. Or it may be persecution if your corporate gatherings for worship and Bible study are suppressed. It may be persecution if your pastor's sermons are censored or if your church is bulldozed. And that's not just a made-up illustration. Uh, Jordan's going to be sharing with us in the second message where those kinds of things are actually happening in the world today, like in the last weeks and months. So let's get a definition. I've talked a lot so far. Do you want sure to say have. something? <laughs> sure have. Sure Is that have. what you said? <laughs> okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this, this definition uh, comes right from uh, an organization called Open Doors, uh, one of the three organizations that we'll be pointing you to over the next couple of weeks. Uh, talking about how can we best support and understand what it is that uh, is going on around the world today. But here's a definition. I love this one. Persecution is any hostility experienced as a result of an identification with Christ, which is what you're talking about before, including the risk of imprisonment, loss of home and assets, physical torture, rape, and even death as a result of their faith. And, uh, and I think that kind of sums it up pretty well in yeah. that case. So you gave, you gave examples of, of it may be persecution when. I've got examples here of uh, it is not persecution when. And so same thing. Here's a list of those for you. Uh, first, you face simple opposition, disagreement, or criticism for your beliefs. That's and not persecution. Not persecution. That's right. And, and I would say that most of us, most of what we experience today would probably fall under that category. Um, not persecution, but we would say opposition. Uh, it's not persecution when the people that you work with poke fun at you for being at church on Sunday. Uh, it's not persecution when someone responds angrily to your post on social media. You could have just put Twitter right there for social yeah, media. Yeah. That's all Twitter is. Yeah. Um, you have to sing in all of us command instead of in all our sons command. Not okay? persecution. Not persecution. You have to walk across a rainbow crosswalk. Not persecution. Not persecution. Someone wishes you a happy holiday instead of Merry Christmas or posts a picture of their family decorating holiday trees instead of Christmas trees. Don't be offended. Not persecution. Not persecution. And we're, what, five months away from that being plastered all over social media? Let's not media? think about it, though. <laughs> <laughs> it is not persecution if you lose your personal income tax benefit on charitable giving. That's probably coming, but yeah. that's not persecution. Not persecution. Right. It's not persecution. Here's one. If the school board curriculum doesn't line up with what God's word says. Difficult and more than likely causing you to make some decisions, but not persecution. Because it's not a religious school system, it's a public school that's system. That's right. right. That's right. We should expect that. We should. Not persecution if you needlessly provoke family members into a response. Not that anyone here would do that. <laughs> Just hypotheticals. Right. And it is not finally persecution when you are in trial or facing God's discipline. Right. And, uh, and obviously in, in all of this, we don't mean to minimize the difficulty of any of these things. If you find yourself in these situations, and uh, we personally have experienced those and understand the difficulty 
of those things, but the purpose really of these lists and really of our time together this morning is to show us, and I hope, hopefully you can see, uh, the fact that we have not yet begun to face persecution for our faith here in Canada. And uh, certainly the days are getting more difficult, and certainly there are indications that it will become tougher to live out our faith in our country, in our city, and in our social circles, but we have not yet begun to face the pressures and persecutions that many throughout history and many even today are facing. And uh, I think that to say any of these things are persecution would be to minimize what so many are experiencing even here today as they seek to gather to open up God's word to spend time in worship uh, together. It's really, it's insulting to people who are really being persecuted mm-hmm. for anyone here to claim you're being persecuted. Why would we insult our fellow bl- brothers and sisters? When you start to hear some of the stories of what's going on around the world today, you'll get it. It's appalling, yeah. really. And, um, and so a good way to think about it, I've got another quote for you here just to kind of help frame up your thinking. Uh, if the reason a believer experienced opposition is due to anything other than his identity with and devotion to Christ, then what happens to him is not Christian persecution. And uh, that came from Tom Askell in his uh, article, What is Christian Persecution? And uh, kind of in speaking about all of this, there is a a thinking, kind of an ideology that has made its way into Western evangelicalism that is particularly damaging and potentially incredibly destructive to our faith, and it's being called the Christian Persecution Complex. And essentially, uh, it's the attitude that in order for a believer's faith to be legit, to be validated, we must experience persecution. And I hope you see how that that's, that's a damaging train of thought. And, and, and just let me add, and I think it could come off of the verse I quoted earlier because people are, are taking verses out of the scriptures and not reading them in their context. So the verse I read about uh, from Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy and saying, you know, um, if you're going to desire to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted, that there's somehow now an equating of those two things, and we think that persecution is required if we're to attain to this high level of holiness. That's right. And, and forgetting that Paul's writing into a specific context. Yeah, and um, it's kind of on, on the idea of Christian persecution complex. I read an article by uh, an author named Alan Noble, and he writes this, For many evangelicals, the lack of very public and dramatic persecution could be interpreted as a sign that they aren't faithful enough. If they were persecuted, they could be confident they are saved. And this creates an incentive to interpret personal experiences and news events as signs of oppression, which are ostensibly... I had to look that up. Yeah, I saw that. It means means apparently, but not actually, okay? okay? These are signs with apparently, but not actually, validations of our commitment to Christ. And the danger of this view is that believers can come to see victimhood as an essential part of their identity. And that's where the problem lies right there, right? Mm -hmm. Is that believers can begin to blow events or circumstances that they face completely out of proportion and things that should be viewed at worst as opposition to our faith are beginning to be seen as persecution. And then followers of Christ can begin to play the victim card. And um, Romans 8 completely disproves the idea that we would play the victim card. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who saved us yeah. and who loved us. And so the reason, obviously, that this, is, that this idea is so damaging is that it takes our eyes off of the reason that we could be persecuted, which is our faith, and puts it onto ourselves, thinking that we have done something right to be able to receive this persecution. 
And um, what, what evangelicals here are calling persecution might actually be the tamest forms of criticism, Kevin Singer writes. When evangelicals respond by retreating into their enclaves, groaning about the culture, and flexing their privileges, they are signaling where their treasure lies. And so it's, it's, it's ridiculously, it's crucially important that we are committed to living in obedience to the commands of God and his word and to be living boldly and unashamedly for the gospel and that be the true treasure for our lives, no matter how the world around us responds. We should have the perspective that the Apostle Peter had actually in 1 Peter 4. He wrote, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Mm-hmm. Right? Instead of feeling like we're victims, instead of getting our, uh, shutting ourselves in from the culture and the people around us, we glorify God by living out the commands to proclaim the gospel that we treasure in our lives. Right? Instead, of, instead of groaning about the good old days and what it used to be, where we used to be able to you know, say the Lord's Prayer in school and do all of these different things, Those days are done. Instead, we glorify God by proclaiming the gospel boldly and unashamedly in the culture around us. And I think that glorifies him because he's the one that that ordains all this to happen. Right, right. Right. And that leads us nicely into the next thing we want to look at here. So we've kind of laid out here the inevitability of persecution, what it is, what it isn't. And we might then ask the question, so why does our powerful, awesome... God, why does he even allow this for the, the children, the sons and daughters that he loves so much? Why does God allow this? What's the divine purpose um, of persecution? And I jotted down four of these here. Um, might be more, but these are the four that seem most obvious. Uh, the first reason for persecution is actually to advance the gospel. The challenge with times of no persecution when everything is like super comfortable is we don't actually have Um, a glaring imperative to share the gospel with anyone, we can become super comfortable in who we are and in our Christian lives, allow everyone else to kind of live their life and we're going to live ours and, and, and just refuse really in a lot of ways to advance the gospel or to preach the gospel. Philippians 1, 12 and 14, 12 to 14 says, I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me, he's talking about his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul was taking advantage of the opportunity. Here's this guy who's just an evangelist and he's in jail simply because he's preaching the gospel. He's got all the imperial guard coming in to guard him. They all know the message of the gospel because he's preaching it to them. Other people are saying, look at Paul, look what he's doing. His ministry is so fantastic under persecution. We're now feeling super bold. We're going to go out and preach the gospel too. We can do that. And um, who knows how many people that came, came to Christ and are awaiting us in heaven who came to Christ as a result of Paul's imprisonment and his persecution. So it's all, all, awesome that the gospel is advanced under persecution. Um, the gospel thrives in persecution We're hearing more and more that the much maligned millennial generation only wants to be involved in churches where they're very serious about ministry, that they're they're serious about Christ and serious about worship and serious about reaching the laws and impacting their community on social justice issues. And so we want to have a place that isn't just a comfortable place to come on Sundays where we have some relationships and they serve good coffee. It's not enough. 
We need something that's going to matter for eternity. And, and, and persecution ramps that up. Yeah. And the absence of persecution often means the absence of a passion for these things. All right, that's the first one. Here's the second one is to identify us with Christ. Of course, Christ suffered in Romans 8, 17. If, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. And there is a sense that when we are crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, that we are identifying with Christ in his entire mission. And, and because we want to be like Christ, because we've been saved by Christ, because he's our Lord and Savior, we want to identify with him in every way that we possibly can. And someday, if we're genuinely saved, we're, we're going to be in his presence and glorified with him. And it, what a joy that's going to be to us. Amen. To identify with, with him in his sufferings, persecution brings that. You get a greater sense of what Christ did for you if you face persecution. Thirdly, I don't, I, I'm pretty sure we don't like this one, but to purify and grow us. Persecution helps to purify and grow us. James 1, 2 to 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Might be sickness, might be financial loss. It might be some other kind of generic trial that we go through. But it's trials of various kinds. And when the, James was writing this, they were facing persecution. That was a, a trial of a kind, persecution. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And, that, and let steadfastness or endurance have its full effect. Notice that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So those trials and that persecution you're going through, that's proving who you are. That's proving you're a follower of Christ because only true followers of Christ endure it. That's right. Someone who's not truly a follower of Christ, as soon as someone says, recant Christ and we'll let you go, they will recant Christ because they never actually had him. But true follower of Christ will endure. So it, it purifies, it grows us, and it identifies us further as one of Christ's own. And then fourth... And this is a surprising one, I think. The divine purpose of persecution is to give us joy in Jesus. The apostle, I was thinking about Acts chapter 5, the earliest days of the spreading of the gospel. And in Acts chapter 5, it says that all the apostles had been arrested, all of them. Um, so Peter and James had previously been in jail and faced scrutiny and then released. And, but this time they gathered all of them up and they put them in jail and they put guards at all the doors and locked all the doors. And in the morning, they went to get them and bring them out. And they weren't there. And somehow that miracle escapes the Jewish council. And they went and found them back in the temple preaching. So they gathered them up. And the, and the apostles were gracious enough just to go along with them and not to kick up a fuss. And they, they put them on trial again. And they were told by one of their own leaders, these, these uh, religious leaders, just let them go. Let them go. And they didn't. They beat them. And then they let them go. And then the apostles said this, and it's astounding. They just got beaten. They got arrested for preaching Jesus, and they got beaten. And then they said they, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy of suffering dishonor for the name. I wonder if I would do that. Yeah. Unjustly arrested, beaten, and then just told to take off and no longer preach, if I would be rejoicing. Yeah, I think all, all of us can ask that question. And, um, 
And the apostles, of course, were an incredible example. We see other examples of this all throughout Scripture. Right. And, and I think of uh, Jeremiah, right, in the Old Testament, kind of like the poster child for faithfulness to the call of God in his life, but then just experienced persecution over and over and over again and continued to be faithful, to proclaim the word that the, that the Lord gave to him, even despite all of these things just looming over his head constantly. And mm-hmm. uh, Jeremiah 26 Uh, We read, the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him saying, you shall die. That's, that's, That's one of six examples in the life of Jeremiah. They threw him into a well, left yeah. him there to die, and yeah, it was awful. And continued to come back again and again because he recognized the importance of what it is he was called to do. And he was never yeah. actually martyred. That's right. So he just faced an ongoing life of just this oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and an incredible example of faithfulness to God despite the obstacles and, right. and, and the consequences in his life. And, uh, and if you jump into the New Testament, I mean, we have, we have plenty of examples there. You know, we think persecution, we jump right to the apostles, to the early church. But right. John the Baptist, even, even before Christ came and started his ministry, was an incredible example for this uh, as well. And, uh, and, you know, he was unapologetic in his preaching of the need to repent and live in righteousness, which included uh, him going to the ruler of the day, to Herod, and calling him out for his unlawful uh, relationship with his brother's wife and all kinds of other evil things that he did. And, uh, and even in, in the face of that, John the Baptist, same thing, faithful to the call that God had put in his life to proclaim what it was that he was called to do. In Luke 3, uh, so with many other exhortations, he, John the Baptist, uh, preached good news to the people. Uh, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. And uh, the response of Herod to the, to the challenge that John the Baptist uh, put in his life to repent and to live in righteousness was to imprison him and then, of course, we know, eventually have him beheaded uh, for what he did. And uh, so we, too, are called to be examples of righteousness, just like John the Baptist would, was, uh, to the world in, in our words and in our deeds. And, then, and of course, the like, quintessential example of all this was, was Stephen, right, in, in Acts chapter 7. Uh, called the first martyr of the early church. He, he faithfully took up the charge to preach Jesus Christ crucified. And uh, the people were, were riled up against him and you know, unjustly, falsely accused of things that he didn't do. He was seized. And, and in one of the most powerful and bold proclamations of the gospel that we read in the New Testament, Stephen stood in the face of persecution and obeyed the Lord. And, uh, and the people, angry by what he said, took him out of the city. We read Acts seven fifty four. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, and they cast, then cast him out of the city and stoned him. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And it's remarkable to note the grace with which Stephen even in his death, lived out the call, mm-hmm. right? He, I mean, he echoed, we see it right here, he echoed the, the, the prayer that Jesus made from the cross in asking God to not count the actions of the people who killed him against him. And that's an incredible example for us and a, a difficult example, I think, to live with that kind of grace in the face right. of that kind of persecution. And then uh, lastly, the, the last example just that I have written down here is uh, the church in Smyrna, who Jesus writes to in Revelation chapter 2. Verses 8 to 10, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
Do not fear when you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, Jesus says. And, uh, and there's three things that I love here. First, you know, we, re- we need to recognize that Jesus knows what we have going on in our lives. Jesus recognized the persecution of the church in Smyrna. He is keenly and intimately aware of all who are persecuted, and there's great comfort in that. And the second thing that we see here is, is where persecution actually comes from. And, and although the, the believers of the church in Smyrna faced slander, unjust or unfounded, untrue claims, Jesus makes a point to say that those are a result, a direct result of the work of Satan. And although we may face persecution eventually, although many people across the world face persecution from individuals, from people groups, uh, we need to recognize that is directly a result of the work of the evil one. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly where it's coming. It is coming directly from the father of lies. And, uh, And Jesus makes that point. He goes so far even to say that Satan will be the one that will put some believers into prison. And it's important for us to understand that in, in light of all of these things that we're discussing today. And then the last thing that we see here is the necessity of faithfulness in the midst of persecution and the promise that comes to these believers if they are faithful even unto death. And that is life and life eternal. And, uh, and you know, God's word is, is, is just completely full of people, of examples of, of faithfulness even under uh, heavy persecution. And, uh, you know, just for time's sake, we only have these four. But you have some examples of, of non-biblical. Well, yeah. And um, how many people have ever heard of this book, Fox's Book of Martyrs? Anybody heard of this book? And it's all, all been updated. I mean, I remember reading kind of like more the, the ancient version when I was in college or before college. And this tells the story starting with ago. when I was in college. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it was a long time ago. <laughs> Bold for an interim staff member, don't you think? <laughs> Pretty bold. Um, where was I? Fox, I don't know, sorry. Where, yeah, Fox, Non-biblical examples. Not, Fox's Book of Martyrs starts with the apostles and tells the story of countless numbers, hundreds of, of martyrs for the faith all throughout history. And then this version goes right into more modern times. And um, this is a great read. I mean, if you're, it's, it's a difficult read. But if you really want to be stirred in your own spirit about the faith of those who have endured the worst that the world can throw at them, get this book and read it this summer, okay? Fox's Book of Martyrs. All right, so I do want to look at a few of these, and, and I, I want to start with um, uh, Nero. And I want to, uh, so Nero uh, was one of the Roman emperors, obviously, and uh, he um, was vicious and was not in his right mind even as a man. And in AD 64, uh, the history books tell us that Rome burned. Um, more than two-thirds of the city was destroyed. Nero was not in the city when it happened. And all of this is relevant because Nero came back to the city and blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. And because uh, Christians had this apocalyptic view of the future where the world would be destroyed because Christians had this notion that Christ wouldn't come until that happened because they had a very real sense, as we just saw in our series on on 2 Thessalonians, that it was going to happen imminently. Like they really did believe that Jesus was going to come like right away. Nero was able to capitalize on on all of that to spread rumors that the Christians had actually incited this fire, burned Rome as a precursor to the return of, of their Messiah. The city actually burned for seven days. They actually kind of mostly got under control. It burned for a little while again after that. 
and many died. I couldn't find any actual numbers of people. And Nero persecuted Christians terribly over the next four years until he himself died, and using this as an excuse to do that. So regular Christians who are just meeting in homes, people like you and I, um, not great leaders, not apostles, not church leaders, not teachers, just anyone who professed faith in, in Christ was, was burned, um, Roman candles burned in garden parties, um, covered in pitch, were, were put into the, into the stadiums and, and uh, torn apart by animals and, and, and crucified, and, and just so many awful things happened to these Christians under Nero. And then a generation or two later, under the emperor Trajan, um, Ignatius, again, who I quoted earlier in the message, uh, in the introduction, um, Ignatius was also martyred. And again, that was the generation right after the apostles. And this is around AD uh, 110. And uh, Ignatius, uh, who was the overseer of the church in Antioch, the capital of Syria, I'm just going to read right from the book here, where the disciples were first called Christians, was sent to Rome because he professed and taught Christ. And it's said that when he passed through Asia, even though guarded by soldiers, he preached the word of God in every city they traveled through and encouraged and strengthened the churches. And while in Smyrna, who Jordan just uh, mentioned the letter to Smyrna, while in Smyrna, he wrote to the church at Rome and appealed to them not to try to deliver, uh, deliver him from martyrdom. So people were lobbying on his behalf. Don't, don't kill our, our pastor. Don't, don't take out our leader. Don't, he's not, he doesn't deserve martyrdom. He doesn't deserve to be executed. So they're trying to do that. And Ignatius was fighting against that because they, they would deprive him of that which he longed for and hoped for. He was, in, in some respects, eager for his martyrdom. And he, he wrote this, Now I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Christ Jesus. What a statement. And when he was sentenced to be fed to the lions and could hear their roaring, he was filled with such desire to suffer for Christ that he said, I am the wheat of Christ. I am going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found pure bread. Facing his own mortality, his own death, all he was thinking of was Christ. And then I just pulled this story because it's a man whose name we don't know from history, aside from what uh, Fox has given to us in the book. And uh, this comes from the 1500s in England. And the persecutions uh, in England during this period of time, it was the period pre-Reformation and into the Reformation. And there were a lot of fights back and forth between the Catholic Church and the new Protestants or the Reformers who were embracing the Word of God. Um, and so this man's name is Richard Byfield. And again, if it wasn't for this book, we wouldn't know who he is. Though the Roman clergy were savage in their cruelty to heretics, they were especially cruel to those who were part of the clergy, but were against their superstitions and man-made doctrines. At Barnes in Surrey in southeast England, a monk named Richard Byfield was converted to the true faith by reading Tyndale's English translation of the New Testament. As a result, 
he also came to believe fully in the opinions of Martin Luther. When this was discovered, he was arrested as a heretic and cast into prison. Because he was a converted Roman cleric, he was tormented unmercifully by his accusers. To make him recant, he was often confined in the worst dungeon in the prison, where he would almost suffocate from the putrid odors of human waste and stagnant water that nearly covered the dirt floor. Rats and cockroaches were his only companions. At times, his jailers would enter his cell and tie his arms behind his back until his shoulders almost dislocated and leave him in that position for days without food or toilet. Other times, they would take him to a whipping post and scourge him until there was little flesh left on his back. But still, he refused to recant his newfound faith in Christ. So he was taken to Lollard's Tower in Lambeth Place, where the archbishop had him chained to the wall by his neck and beaten severely once a day by his servants. Finally, as an act of mercy, he was condemned, degraded, and burned at Smithfield, which is just north of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. The thing to remember is that these are not superhuman people. These are ordinary folks like you and I. They're not remarkable in any way. They're just genuine followers of Jesus Christ who, like Byfield, he just got the Bible open and read it in his own language and heard the words that were transforming to his life. They're just people who loved Jesus so much that they refused to deny Jesus, even under torture, even under horrible imprisonment situations, even under the threat of death, even facing and enduring the injustice. What did I do wrong but love Jesus? They're people just like you and I. I have no doubt that if those in the room who genuinely love Jesus were faced with these choices, you would choose imprisonment. You would choose beatings. You would choose the threat of death. You would live with the injustice if you genuinely love Jesus as these dear believers did. And so I I hear those lyrics again and I think about Ignatius and I think about the Christians in Rome under Nero's persecutions and I think about Richard Byfield And I believe that they would all sing, take this whole world and give me Jesus. Take this whole world and give me Jesus. And I I hope and pray that every genuine believer here would say the same thing. Take it all. All I need is Jesus. And that's really the purpose of, of why we've chosen to do this series kind of as we have is to... Um, encourage and challenge your faith as well to hear stories uh, both biblical and non-biblical and and next week we'll look at some some modern day stories as well to really get you to consider all of these things and uh, to understand persecution kind of as a whole and then like todd said our hope and prayer is that this would ignite your faith again into a a real genuine way and uh, so like I said, next week we're going to have an opportunity to talk through some of the modern day examples of, of persecution. Some of it's going to be shocking. It is. And yeah. uh, actually, you, you sent me an article last night um, that detailed a study was done in 2017. And 143 
of the 194 countries in this world uh, registered harassment for Christians in some way, shape, or form. And uh, I don't think that we fully realize the scale with which this is happening right. in our world today. And, uh, you know, by God's grace and blessing in our lives, we have the opportunity to be here, to be able to gather uh, without any threat or without any, um, you know, persecution or hostility at all. Uh, but this happens in a lot of places around the world. Right. And so we'll look at that next week. We'll also look at uh, some practical ways that we personally respond to persecution should it ever arise. So looking forward to that. And uh, obviously, we've used a number of different examples and quotes and things like that here this morning. And uh, if you want access to those, they're all on hbc.info under our weekend services tab. So make sure you check those out uh, this week. Let me pray for us really quickly, and then we'll close our time together. God, it is truly an incredible blessing to be here, and we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word, and uh, God, for the examples that we see throughout history, through your word of... um, men and women so passionately following you in the face of so many different circumstances. And Father, I pray for each believer in the room here right now. God, I pray that as we consider all of these things, as we go from this place, and God, continue to have these things in our mind, I pray, Father, that you would ignite our faith to deeper levels than it ever has been before. Mm -hmm. Father, that we would be passionately pursuing you in your word so that we can know more of who you are, so that we can grow in confidence of our knowledge of you and Hide your word in our hearts so as to be able to use it to the people around us. God, I pray that the call of Jesus to go into all the world and to make disciples would be forefront in our minds in every situation as we go from this place to time with family and friends, to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces. God, I pray that that we would be pursuing this, that we would see everything that we face from the lens of how can I bring glory to your name, Father, by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to the people around me. God, I pray that we would do that Lord, with abandon, God, unashamed and bold, as we have seen the examples of so many do before us today. So, Father, I pray that you go before us. I pray, uh, Lord, that this week we would seek to glorify you in increasing ways. Would you get all the glory for this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.